Let's go to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. We've been looking through the book of Mark at how Mark looks at Jesus as the suffering servant as prophesied by Isaiah. He's more concerned with his works than his words. And we've seen that, how it moves constantly from one event to another. This healing and that exorcism and the training of the disciples and the raising of the dead. And for the last three chapters now, ever since um, chapter 11, we've been in crucifixion week. And now uh, we find ourselves here at the Passover feast with the disciples in the upper room. And we're within maybe one hour of his arrest. And we've already seen that Judas has betrayed him. And by the time we get to the text that we're at this morning, uh, when the disciples partake of the, the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper as we call it, Judas has already left the table. He's going to uh, lead the Roman soldiers and the Jews to where Jesus is at. And so they partake of this Lord's Supper without Judas there. I find that interesting. We're going to look at that here in just a minute. Uh, Two weeks ago, we looked at Christ as our Passover lamb. We're going to see a little bit more of that today. But then last week, we looked at, at Judas and how... You know, we hear the very name Judas Iscariot and it just kind of gets our stomach in knots. But we, I think we realize that we might have more in common than Judas than we would uh, care to admit or care to know. And I know certain people that I've met have a whole lot more in common with Judas than they would ever care to admit. And uh, we need to, at some points in our life, listen, as I said, I don't believe in doubt casting. But there are certain points of our life we need to take a good long look in the mirror examine our heart, examine our lives according to the Word of God and make sure that we're in the faith, that we know for sure that we're saved. And today that's where we pick up specifically uh, with the institution of the Lord's Supper. And, you know, we come across texts like these in the Word of God. This is yet another reason I love preaching through books. We look at certain things like this and say, well, this might be boring or it might be too formal or I may know all there is already about the Lord's Supper. But But really, I mean, there's just so much depth here and there's so much to be gathered. It's so relevant to us today. And as I mentioned, in a few weeks, we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper on Sunday night. And so we really need to get these things fresh in our mind. But um, with that in mind, let's read our text, Mark chapter 14 and verse 22. It says, And as they did eat, Jesus took bread and blessed and brake it. And gave to them and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they drank all of it. They all drank of it. And he said unto them, This is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many. Verily I say unto you, I will drink no more of the fruit of the vine until that day that I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung in him, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you this morning. And God, we just ask forgiveness where we failed you. Uh, Lord, I'm so inadequate to preach your word. Uh, God, I just pray that you would empty me of sin and self and hide me. Lord, that you would be seen and people would hear from you and not me. And Lord, that I would say what you want me to say. And Lord, how you want me to say it. And I would leave alone those things that you don't want said. But Lord, just fill me your Holy Spirit now and feed your people today. God, I pray that you would become more precious to us than when we first walked in the door this morning. 
And I pray that we, even in the imagery and the truth behind the Lord's Supper, that we would grow closer to you. And Lord, we'll thank you and praise you for it. In Christ's name, I pray these things. Amen. So I want to look this morning at what's so special about the Lord's Supper and why is it relevant to us today. Um, There's four things that I really want to focus in on this morning. And really, before we get deep into the text, uh, the first point I want to talk about, I've got all P's this morning. If I can, I try to alliterate because it helps me remember it. I hope it helps you remember it. I'm not trying to be crafty or or brainy. I just think it's a helpful tool, Uh, though it's not necessary. But uh, the first thing I want to look at this morning is the particulars. The particulars as it pertains to the Lord's Supper. I think there's some things, there's some nuances we need to talk about and get out of the way before we really see what's specifically in the text this morning. And when it comes to the Lord's Supper, as Baptists, uh, we look at the Scriptures and we see two basic ordinances of the church. And that is uh, the baptism of the believer and the Lord's Supper. And neither one of these ordinances have saving grace attached to them. We need to really nail that down because uh, there are factions out there that would attach salvation to water baptism or, or to the Lord's Supper. And that's just taking it too far. Um, in fact, I, I looked it up again because I think it's important to point back to the confessions of old when we get a chance and... Uh, of course, on Wednesday night, we went through the New Hampshire Baptist Confession of Faith of 1833, and I really enjoyed doing that. But Article 14 of the Confession of the Ordinances, it says, We believe that the Christian baptism is the immersion in water of a believer into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost to show forth in a solemn and beautiful emblem our faith in the crucified, buried, and risen Savior with its effect in our death to sin and resurrection to a new life, then I I find this important. It said, It is a prerequisite to the privileges of a church relation and to the Lord's Supper, in which the members of the church, by sacred use of bread and wine, are to commemorate together the dying love of Christ, preceded always by solemn self-examination. And so we're definitely going to do that in the weeks to come. But uh, the Lord's Supper is not to be taken lightly. And I think a lot of people do that. And, and honestly, uh, when it comes to this issue of the Lord's Supper, um, there's very few churches I've seen that does the Lord's Supper exactly the same way as another church. Some do the Lord's Supper every single service. Some do it bi-weekly. Some do it every quarter. Some do it once a year. Uh, me personally, I like to do it twice a year around Easter and Christmas. And I think it's one of those matters of liberty that you can't really dogmatically state, you know, how often you're supposed to do it. I think that's why he said, as oft as you do this, do it or remember me. In other words, you decide. But the point is we do it and we do it in remembrance of him. And personally, uh, one of the reasons I do it that way is I think it is more special that way. I think it is human nature. If we do something all the time, we lose the, the value in it. And that's why, you know, I've seen some churches that, you know, they might do it on a Sunday morning after the service. But I, I, and I never did like that because you do the service and then you kind of tack it on right there at the end before everybody goes to eat. And I just, I, I like to take more time with it than that. And if you uh, came to when we did it last year, you know that I try to make it special. It is, 
I really, I really enjoy it, and I, I try to put a lot into it. Um, but I'll say this, as far as not taking it lightly, if someone isn't a born-again Christian, they should not partake of it at all. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 27 through 29, it says, Wherefore, whosoever shall eat of this bread and drink of this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Very serious language there. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. That's very, very strong warning there. If you're not saved, don't do it. Don't, don't do it. But I would say, too, uh, many churches like ours, we practice what's called close communion. And uh, what that simply means is you have to be saved, but you also have to be a baptized member in good standing to partake of the Lord's Supper. And, and now some people you know, might think this is being rude or being cruel, but I want to explain why we do that. I think it's important to understand that. And, you know, close communion is not a new thing. It's an ancient practice. It goes all the way back to the first century. They didn't call it close communion. They called it fencing the table. That was the phrase they used in the early church. And in fact, a lot of it goes back to exactly what Derek talked about this morning. Um, The reason the early church did this is because they wanted to have control over who partook of the Lord's Supper because there were certain churches, they had certain things that they thought would make somebody uh, a a member not in good standing that uh, didn't need to partake. And the the early issue that brought this on uh, was meat sacrificed unto idols, what Derek talked about this morning. Now, the Apostle Paul said that it wasn't necessarily a sin, it was more of a matter of conscience. Uh, they would take meats, uh, sacrifice them unto idols, but they didn't use the whole thing, so they would sell the meat, sacrifice unto idols to the market, and then somebody could buy it from the market cheaper a lot of times than they could the meat that had not been sacrificed unto idols. And this became a big deal in the Christian church. Should we do this? Should we not? And Paul said it's really a matter of conscience because all you're doing is eating it. You're not... You're not praying to that God. You're not sacrificing to that God. It's meat and you eat it. But some Christians and some churches just didn't feel comfortable with that. So they made that a stipulation of their church members. So they wanted to be able to control that. And and admittedly, I have not always been super strict about that. I've always been strict about you have to be saved. Uh, But what I ran into in Alabama a lot of times is, when we did our uh, Lord's Supper, it was usually around the holidays, and uh, we had our members who had family coming and visit, and they're saved, and I know they go to a Baptist church, and under their testimony, and it got to the place where, uh, you know, I would encourage everybody, we always had a time before we did it of examination, and I made sure everybody understand that, but I didn't police it. I, you know, I, I wanted to be in a worshipful state myself. But understand the reason the early church did it is really the same reason that we we have to do it here. We have to do that here. Because just like the early church was in a pagan land, they never knew who was going to show up. Guess where we're at? We're in a pagan land full of false religion. And guess who's going to show up on Lord's Supper night? It just happened the last time we did it. we know uh, some of the Mormons that come faithfully on Sunday night here, and I think one of them's only goal in life is to convert me. 
And we, we have to do that because they're not Christian. They don't worship the same Jesus we do. They don't know the same God we do. They don't have the same authority that we do. And it would be the epitome of confusion to serve them the bread and the cup with the same congregation who is saved. It's confusion. Not only to the congregation here, but also to them. They're not saved. We need to fence the table. And so that's why we do it that way. We're not trying to be rude. We're not trying to be ugly. We're just trying to be biblical. And so that's why we do it that way. But I will say this. When we fence the table for the Lord's Supper, don't miss a great opportunity. Because fencing the table when it comes to the Lord's Supper is a great gospel opportunity. Because when we uh, have to explain why we're doing what we're doing, it's a great visual memorial, is it not? My children ask me, Dad, why do we do that? And I get to tell them. If somebody comes for a visit and they wonder what, we do, uh, what we're doing and, and why they can't partake of it, well, we get to explain it to them. It's a great gospel opportunity. Uh, partaking of the Lord's Supper is a big deal. It's very sacred. That's why we do close communion. And I like what Josh Boosie said. He said, each time we gather for worship at the Lord's Supper table, I make it a steady practice to clearly fence the table. Fencing the table is explaining who is and who is not welcome to partake of the bread and the cup when they are passed. As, often, as I often repeat here on this blog and in my sermons, doctrine matters. And think about this. Jonathan Edwards was fired because of his view of the Lord's Supper. Not only was he fired, he was exiled. He had to leave the town. Um, the Puritans were burned at the stake because of their position on the Lord's Supper. Calvin once passionately threw himself over the Lord's table to protect it from flagrant sinners in Geneva. We must not casually gather for worship around the Lord's Supper. And uh, so we, that's why we fence the table. Don't miss that opportunity. But then very quickly, and I'll get into the Scriptures this morning, um, the last um, particular that I wanted to deal with is the four views, historic views on the Lord's Supper. Because the question has always been, when we partake of the Lord's Supper, um, in what capacity is the Lord with us in that moment? That's always been the argument. There's four positions on that. Uh, we know of transubstantiation. That's what the Catholic Church believes. And what that means is that when, um, when you partake of the bread and the cup, that it literally becomes the physical body of the Lord and the blood of the Lord as you partake. That's, uh, that's satanic. And in fact, I would say in anything in life, not just the Lord's Supper, if, if there's any belief we have or any ceremony or anything that we do that worships the physical human nature of Christ as being in our presence is not a good thing. Listen, the incarnation is still a reality. Christ is still God in the flesh, but bodily He's seated at the right hand of the Father. And so when somebody says that Jesus visited them physically, I automatically know there's a big issue going on. Now He's with us in His omniscience. He's with us in His divinity. But His body is physically seated at the right hand of God the Father. He's interceding for us right now. In fact, um, I know we just got through... Uh, Halloween here recently, and have you ever heard that uh, that uh, term hocus pocus? 
You often associate that with witches and witchcraft. You know where that comes from? It's where the Catholic priest blesses the Mass. And he uses the phrase, hokai pokai, which means from this to that. In other words, he is changing the bread and the cup into the body and the blood of the Lord. From this to that. That's what that phrase means. And it is. It's witchcraft. That's where it comes from. But then the, the second view of the Lord's Supper is called consubstantiation. It's just a very confusing thing. I still can't even wrap my head around it. But basically the elements, the, the bread and the wine, they don't turn uh, into the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. But supernaturally and mysteriously, the, the real body and blood of the Lord attaches itself to those elements. This is what Luther taught. It's very confusing. Uh, but it's, it's basically a, a different package for the same thing. It's still the, basically the same thing. It's transubstantiation. It's dead wrong. And the Reformers fought Luther tooth and nail on that issue. But then the third is known as a spiritual presence. And that is that the natural elements are instrumentally used to convey the spiritual presence of Christ to the partaker through faith. Um, I don't have a problem with that one. I don't think that one's heretical. And I would like to think that the Lord is with us in a special way when we partake of the Lord's Supper, even if it's not physically or humanly. Uh, but then there's the fourth kind, which is this the, the purely symbolic, uh, where the Lord is not necessarily with us in a special way, uh, but the elements commemorate the sacrificial work of Christ, and their value to the participant is the spiritual blessing received thereby. And you'll find, if you look at the old confessions, you'll find Baptist churches that believe that third and fourth one. I don't think you get off in a ditch if you believe either one of those. But... Um, so I think that's important to understand that. I believe the Lord is with us in a special way in that, but certainly not bodily. But um, let's get in the Scriptures this morning. And I noticed that somebody removed the clock off the back wall, so I'm just going to assume you want me to preach longer and you don't care what time we get out of here, so I'm just going to go with it this morning. But um, we looked at the particulars. But the second thing I'm going to look at, we're going to look, the next three points are going to be dealing with the Lord's Supper as it pertains to the past, present, and the promise, which is the promise of the future. So number two, the past as it pertains to the Lord's Supper. Look at verse 22. Chapter 14 and verse 22. It says, And as they did eat, Jesus took bread and blessed and brake it and gave it to them and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Now, I just want to hit a doctrinal issue here. The Catholics would argue that Jesus didn't say, this is a symbol of my body. He said, this is my body. And so they say, well, um, you're being unbiblical, unscriptural, because you say that it's in fact not his body. The, the simple, easy answer to that is this. Are we to also say that Jesus is actually the door? He said, I am the door. Are we to take that as literally Jesus is a piece of wood walking around in heaven somewhere, and if you were to go shake his hand, he's going to stick his doorknob out so you can shake. Or are we to take that as Jesus is the only entrance into heaven? I think the meaning is pretty clear. It's the same way when it talks about this is his body and this his blood. They want to take something simple and make it difficult because they want to change the meaning. And so that's, I shot that rabbit dead, but let's move on. Um, now, I, man, this is so important here, and we don't need to miss this. 
But there are two other times that we see where Christ broke bread with others. There was the feeding of the 5,000 in which there were 12 baskets left over. Uh, this speaks of the, tw- the 12 tribes of Israel. And by the way, when the feeding of the 5,000 took place, they were in Jewish country. But then the other time that Christ broke bread with others was the other feeding miracle, which was the feeding of the 4,000, in which seven baskets were left over. That's the number of completion. In other words, complete salvation, Jew and Gentile, and that feeding of the 4,000 took place in Gentile country. Isn't that amazing? The picture that he gives us there. Um, But when we look at this picture here in our text, and it says that Christ broke the bread, this speaks of His broken body. And by the way, this was a common thing. This wasn't limited to the Passover. When A lot of times when Jews of this era would get together, they would break bread together. And so from that point on, every single time they ate a meal in which they broke bread, they could never do that without thinking of the Lord Jesus Christ. His body broken for us. And, and I think when we, when we talk about the broken bread, we have to talk about the horrors of the last 24 hours of Christ's life. It's unimaginable what He went through. Uh, without even talking about the spiritual aspect, I don't even think we can understand the spiritual aspect of what He went through. The wrath of God the Father being laid on Him. Our sin being laid on Him. And then from a physical aspect, now... Um, If you want to talk about accuracy, uh, the movie The Passion of the Christ is heavily influenced by Catholic doctrine. There's no doubt about that. But from a historical perspective of what somebody would have went through, uh, as far as crucifixion goes, it's very historically accurate. It's very violent. It's very brutal. I watched the movie one time and I'll never watch it again. I can't take it. I can't deal with it. I can't. I can't watch that level of violence poured out on the Lord like that. I mean, it's, it's unreal what He went through. I mean, I'm talking about from being whipped with a cat of nine tails. It was a whip with nine lashes. It had uh, bone fragments and metal fragments and maybe uh, some types of uh, pottery shards or whatever. And, and the soldier knew how to crack it at just the right way to where those fingers would rip flesh off of a person. And I know that in our minds we probably think about, um, you know, that picture of the Lord maybe on the cross. He looks all clean cut and it just wasn't like that. He was a piece of jello hanging from that cross. And I'm not trying to be graphic, but I'm just telling you like it is. By the time he got there, I mean, based on uh, what a cat of nine tails alone would do to somebody, you could literally see his bones. You could see the organs in his back. Uh, we know this even from what the Scripture says. The, uh, psalm 22 is a Messianic psalm. And um, it says in verse 14 through 18, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws, and thou hast brought me into the dust of death." For dogs have compassed me, the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me, they pierced my hands and my feet. I may tell all my bones. In other words, I can see my bones. I can tell all my bones. They looked and stared upon me. They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. And so when he says, take, eat, this is my body, we can see the significance of, 
of the past in the Lord's Supper. He was whipped with a cat of nine tails. He had the hair ripped out of his face. He was beaten. He was buffeted. He was mocked. He was spit on. He was stripped naked. Uh, He had a crown of thorns platted on his head. And we're not talking about little thorns here. We're talking about like... Um, we're talking about like railroad spike, almost like thorns on your head. And so I can't even imagine. And even uh, when it comes to being crucified, obviously the nails going in the hands and they would cross the feet over and nail through both legs with one nail. And, and most uh, victims of crucifixion, they died from asphyxiation. They, they couldn't breathe well when they were hanging down and all the weight of their body was against their arms and chest, so they had to push up on those nails to get air. And when they finally got so tired they couldn't do that anymore, they suffocated. That's how horrible his death was. That's what it talks about when he says his body was broken. But then the third thing I want you to see is the the meaning of the present as it pertains to the Lord's Supper. Look at verse 23. And he took the cup, and, and notice, I want to start right there, he didn't say cups. Now, in this, in the culture, as far as the Passover went, they passed around one cup. They shared one cup. And, of course, we could never do that in a COVID world, and I'm thankful for the cups, plural. But I thought I would point that out to you. It says, they took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they drank all of it. Um, this is sometimes known as the Eucharist. That's not a word we need to be afraid of, even though the Catholics have hijacked it. But it simply comes from the Greek word that means to give thanks. That's what it means. And so that's where that comes from. But uh, when he says the New Testament, he's speaking of a new covenant, which presupposes an old covenant. And we mu- this is so important. We must remember that the Lord's Supper has replaced the Passover. It happened on the Passover, and it replaced the Passover, where the Jews would remember uh, the night in Egypt when uh, they put the blood of the Lamb on the doorpost, and the death angel, the wrath of God, passed over them. Uh, He has replaced that. And, And I guess if I was going to make a case for how often that you were supposed to do the Lord's Supper... I think that I could probably make a good case that we might do it once a year. If it's replaced the Passover ceremony, I think that speaks of doing it fewer times than more. But I don't think it's a doctrine. I don't think it's a fellowship issue. But I just throw that out there. Um, the Passover now for the Jews is meaningless because it was a shadow of the real thing. And now that the real thing has come, we don't need the shadow. But we still see the beautiful typology. Uh, Because the blood of a lamb had been applied to the doorpost in Egypt, the wrath of God passed over the Israelites. And because the blood of a lamb has been applied to our hearts, the wrath of God will pass over us. That's only true for the saved person. And I hope it is true because as we saw two weeks ago, death is coming. We don't know when it's coming. But death is coming. It is appointed unto man once to die. And after this, the judgment. Has the blood been applied to your heart and life? Not only was the blood of the Passover lamb applied to the door, uh, but I think it's important to point out that during the Passover feast, not only uh, did they eat of the bread and uh, of the cup, but they also ate of the lamb with bitter herbs. And even the night of Egypt, not only was the blood of the lamb on the door, but the lamb was within. That's a great picture, isn't it? 
The, the blood of the Christ not only applies to our heart, but the Lamb is within. If you're saved, we have Christ in us, the hope of glory. But the question is, if the Lamb is on the inside, does He show on the outside? Uh, I knew of a preacher years ago, an evangelist, and he was preaching a revival one night, and he was talking about the truth of Christ being in us if we're saved. And... There was this little girl, she might have been five or six, and after the service she came up to the evangelist and said, uh, you know, she was just asking questions, and she said, how, how big do you think Jesus was? And he said, well, I mean, I guess if he was average height, he was probably about six feet tall, and, you know, he was just going through this answer. And she said, wow, if Jesus is that big, and I'm this small, and he's living inside me, he should be sticking out somewhere, shouldn't he? <laughs> Isn't that true, though? Out of the mouth of babes. If he's in here, he ought to be sticking out somewhere. He ought to show in our life and our thoughts and our attitude and the words that come from our mouth. I don't, I don't believe there's any such thing as a secret service Christian. I don't believe that. If he's in you, he's going to change you. If any man, if any woman be in Christ, they are a new creature. Old things are passed away, behold, all things... Or become new. But what I find interesting about this, couldn't prove this, wouldn't try to be dogmatic about it, but I find it interesting that the Lord Jesus and His disciples are celebrating the Passover. He's instituting this new covenant, this Lord's Supper. But at the Passover feast, uh, you would always eat lamb mixed with bitter herbs. But we don't see the lamb anywhere in this meal, do we? We see the bread, we see the cup, we don't see the lamb. I can't help but think that maybe they didn't have it because they, were, they weren't going to eat the lamb. They were eating with the lamb. Isn't that a good thought? They were eating with the lamb. Now, let me say this and I'll get to my last point. We're done. Has the blood of Christ, our Passover lamb, been applied to your heart? Because death is coming. I can't reiterate that enough. Death is coming. But then fourthly and lastly, and I, I believe this is probably the most beautiful part of the Lord's Supper and maybe the most overlooked part. But I want to look at the promise of the future concerning the Lord's Supper. Look at verse 25. It says, Verily I say unto you, I will drink no more of the fruit of the vine until that day that I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. Now the central message of Christ that He brought was the message of the kingdom of God. Now, it's important to understand that the kingdom of God has two aspects to it. The kingdom of God is already, and it's not yet. It is a realm, and it is a reign. Uh, for those who are saved, you are in the kingdom of God right now upon the earth. But there will come a day when Christ will come physically and reign over this earth. Make no, no mistake about it, Christ is reigning now. <laughs> He's reigning right now from the throne in heaven. And if you're saved, you belong to the kingdom of God. But the kingdom of God comes to full fruition when Jesus comes to this earth and reigns on this earth. And He says in that moment, when He is reigning on the earth and we're reigning with Him, we're going to partake of this Lord's Supper together. What a thought is that? We're going to sit around the Lord's table with the Lord Himself. He said He would not partake of this again until He could do it with all of the saints from every generation. We're going to be seated with the Lord 
with others from every generation, the saved from every generation, including those, our loved ones, who were saved, who have gone on before. Won't that be a moment? Think about that for a minute. So it has a, a future promise attached to it. And you say, well, what will be the significance of it then? The fact, listen, we're going to be sitting with the Lord in our perfect bodies, in a perfect kingdom, and we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper, and it's going to be a reminder of what got us there in the first place. <laughs> it's going to take on a whole new meaning then, isn't it? Um, this is going to be an eternal memorial to remind us of why we're saved and why we're in the kingdom and what a blessing that's going to be. And what a blessing it is when we get to partake of it together as a body of believers. What a, what a special moment that is. I mean, really, when we do this, we're not only remembering the past, uh, but we're looking to the future. It's a, it's a dress rehearsal for the real thing. I'm so looking forward to that. But then the last thing I'll say, and I'm done. It says, they went out and they sung in hymn, and then they went into the Mount of Olives. Now, some have said, man, I sure wish I, I knew what they sang, but we do know what they sang. Because it was common custom every year at Passover, when they had partaken of the feast, they would sing the Hallel Psalms. Psalm 113 through 118. They would sing those songs together. And so if you want a good study, go back and read Psalm 113. It's very short. Psalm 113 through 118 and read it from the context of what it would have meant to the Jews thinking of Passover and the prophetical significance that Jesus was taught. He was literally talking about His own death and resurrection as He's singing those psalms. Isn't that amazing to me? It's unbelievable to me how that fits together. Um, the Hallel Psalms, of course, come, it's where we get the word Hallelujah, which means praise the Lord. Yah is the name of God. Praise the Lord. It's Psalms of praise. Psalm 113 through 118. So I, I ask this question, but I'll close with it. Are you a partaker of the blood and the body of Lord Jesus Christ through repentance and faith? And the question is, let me ask you this. If we had the Lord's Supper this morning, if we passed out the unleavened bread and the cups, would you be able, would you be able to partake of it? Would you feel worthy enough? And here's the thing I want to convey to you. You're not worthy. I'm not worthy. Christ has made us worthy. But do you know, know the Lord Jesus Christ in repentance and faith? Have you been made worthy? Because if you can't partake of it here, you're not going to partake of it over there. You're not even going to get the opportunity. So what a beautiful picture. And I so look forward to doing that here in a few weeks with y'all. But do you know the Lord has the blood been applied to your heart? If not, you need to repent and trust Christ today. Let the blood be applied to your heart and life.